Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open to the book of Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Today we'll begin in verse 11. Read a story of God's hand guiding Moses. When we think about the story of Exodus, maybe you've been waiting on us to get to the big portions of Exodus, and we will get there, I promise. But as we think about the book of Exodus, don't we think of these big epic themes, slavery and deliverance, bondage and triumph. We think of God using an ordinary man to do extraordinary things. Maybe you think of the staff turning into a serpent or the rivers turning to blood or the frogs and the flies and the Passover or the parting of the Red Sea or the manna from heaven or the quails or whatever it is that we think of, these grand miracles, signs and wonders as God leads his people through this epic saga of a story. But if we're not careful, we can begin to think that it is only in those big, epic, miraculous times that God is leading. We can begin to think that, oh yes, God is at work in the plagues. God is at work in the Red Sea. God is at work in the Passover. Maybe like Elijah, God is in the fire. God is in the earthquake. When sometimes it is God working in the still, quiet voice. Sometimes it is God working in the ins and outs of everyday life, not just in the big stuff. In fact, we read these stories about the big stuff to remind us that if God is in control and has all power even over these big stories and these big signs and miracles, then surely God is in control of the small stuff. God is at work in all things. From the greatest miracles that we read here in Exodus and throughout the Bible to the ins and outs of our seemingly mundane, normal lives. That unseen hand that the choir just sang about is leading and guiding and directing and preserving and protecting, not just in the big things, but in all things. The good, the bad, the righteous, the wicked, the sinful, the holy. God is at work in and through all of it, driving and compelling all things to work together, as Romans 8.28 tells us, for our good and for his glory. And that's true not just for Moses, not just for the Israelites that we read about here in Exodus, not just for the characters throughout the Bible, but in my life and in your life, even here this morning. As we go further into the narrative today, we see God at work in Moses' life in a time when he was running in time when he was confused and lost, we see God's guiding, sovereign, powerful hand. And we need to remember today, be reminded that God has not somehow changed and that this power and this providence that was at work in Moses' life at that time in those events 
is the same God and the same power and the same presence that is at work in my life and your life and in the events of our lives right here and right now. That same might, that same power, that same providence. Just as God providentially preserved Moses from Pharaoh's murderous rampage we read about last week, through the trust of a mother putting her baby in a basket and setting him in the river, to a compassionate daughter and a watching sister, God's providence and faithfulness guiding all the way, God's care and God's providence continues here and in your life right now. Read with me in Exodus chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. We'll read to verse 25. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, and Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it you have come so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. and He gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew This is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Number one today, we see in these first few verses a man who is on the run. On the run. In fact, if we were writing this story, maybe we would write it differently. It almost seems as if the story is setting itself up to go differently, doesn't it? Moses is somehow providentially carried into the palace of Pharaoh, raised there by Pharaoh's daughter, We kind of heard this story before. A Hebrew accidentally winds up in Egypt and he rises to power. Joseph, and he saves the Hebrews. He saves the whole land from famine. Is that what God is doing here? A man brought into a royal family, raised up to power to save his people from their groaning and from their slavery. We would have written this story perhaps differently. Here it begins to take a surprising turn. And this would-be deliverer becomes a fugitive. Because he's a murderer. And then he becomes a stranger. In verse 11, it just says one day. The the action seems to be, as Moses has grown up, the text says, scholars believe he was maybe about 30 years old. 
It was not uncommon in the ancient Near East for biographers to skip the childhood. You think of Jesus' own life. We only have that one episode when he was 12 that tells us anything about his childhood. Everything else is just speculation. Then he shows up at the River Jordan when he's about 30. The same thing seems to be happening here with Moses. One day after Moses is all grown up. Not only that, but he seems to understand now who he is. He understands that these people, these Hebrew slaves, are his people. Now, how that came about and how that happened, how he found out, did he always know? Did his mother raise him knowing that when she was nursing him? Did Pharaoh's daughter tell him that when he returned to the palace? Who knows? There's all kinds of speculation we could do about how and when Moses found out who he really was. But at some point, he's found out. Because here in verse 11, two times, it talks about him going out to his people... And then it talks about the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Word there could actually be brothers. That Moses saw his brothers being mistreated. And he saw this one brother in particularly being mistreated. So in verse 12, this anger rises up from within Moses. Many of the commentators believe that Moses, having known now his heritage and his lineage, knowing who he was and who these people were, often went down to observe their burdens, often went down to watch them work and toil, and maybe over time something was stirring in his spirit and in his mind and in his heart, and in verse 12 it just boils over as he sees this one Hebrew being mistreated by his taskmaster. It says he looks this way and that way, and he strikes down this Egyptian taskmaster. He kills him and hides him there under the sand. In verses 13 and 14, we see that his secret was known, though. Although he looked this way and that, and he perceived that no one was watching, someone saw. And word spread. So that even as he sees two of his brothers fighting with each other and begins to correct them, they turn to Moses as if to say, and who do you think you are? Are you going to kill us too? Sounds like the grumbling and the groaning that we'll know from the Hebrews later in their journeys to the wilderness against Moses. Who do you think you are doing this, saying this? Are you going to kill me now too? So Moses knows that his secret is known. He knows that the cat is out of the bag, even in verse 15, all the way to Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself hears of Moses' crime. Pharaoh wants justice, and he seeks to kill Pharaoh. Now, one might see this and think this is simply an event that just sort of furthers the action. You know, we've got to get Moses out of Egypt. We've got to turn him against the Egyptians. And so if we're sitting down writing a story and we're just making up something, then let's put this little twist in here where he turns against the Egyptians and he has a reason to run and he has a reason to go away and be against uh, these Egyptians coming to terms with his ancestry and his heritage. But there's far more going on here than just a furtherance of the plot. If you really think about it, this is Moses' first attempt at deliverance. This is Moses' heart welling up for his people, his brothers, the Hebrews, and attempting, at least in this one scenario, to free them from their bondage. And it fails miserably. It fails miserably. Because this is Moses' attempt to do what God would call him to do but had not yet called him and empowered him to do. 
And so what we see here, although it's a shadow of things to come, it's a precursor of the deliverance that is to come, we see the consequences of taking matters into our own hands and dealing with things irrationally and maybe sinfully, even with good motives or good intentions. Here is Moses in his first attempt to deliver his people, failing miserably because he trusted in himself rather than in the guiding sovereign power and providence of God. And so Pharaoh is rightly after him. This man has committed murder against an Egyptian taskmaster, someone high up in the ranks, and he deserves to die. And so Moses flees, it says in verse 15, to the land of Midian very brief little history of the land of Midian in Genesis chapter 25 verse 2 we understand that the Midianites were the clan or the nation the peoples that came through one of Abraham's sons with his wife Keturah that one of the sons that his wife Keturah bore to him was named Midian the Midianites who settled somewhere in the northern Sinai peninsula in the wilderness in a harsh desolate place We go on to read throughout the Old Testament, the Midianites were often the enemies of Israel. They often battled each other. But this is where Moses finds himself, on the run, in a foreign land, with a foreign people, distantly related, yes, but now foreign, a harsh climate, a desolate land, needing rest. And he finds himself at the end of verse 15, sitting by a well. Oh, how often God works with people finding themselves sitting beside a well. But Moses isn't thinking of that story. Moses isn't thinking about God's grand design and where he fits in God's grand, sovereign, providential story to keep his promises, God's faithfulness, God's promise. That's not where Moses' mind is. It's not on God's overarching story in the middle of all this, but there he is in the middle of all this. After a tremendous screw-up for his failure and his sin, after a tremendous trek into the middle of nowhere, nothing tremendous seems to be on the horizon. But something tremendous is happening. Number two, we see Moses as a sojourner and a stranger in verses 16 through 22. You notice at the beginning of verse 16, we see the word now. The Bible often uses the word now to carry us further into the action, to carry us deeper into the story. But there's also something, if you think about it, underneath the word that says, yes, all this was going on, but it is part of this larger story. It tells us that as random and circumstantial and coincidental as all this seems, a guy raised in Pharaoh's palace, now finding himself a fugitive, a murderer, sitting by a well. Now, though, we see it is all going somewhere. We are introduced here to the Midianites and the Midianite priest named here in this text, Reuel. Now, many of you who know your Bible say, wait a minute, I thought Moses' father-in-law was named Jethro. And now we see Reuel. What in the world's going on here? Scholars believe that Reuel would have been the clan name. And just as we might call, you know, when we have two mats, Hazelwood or Price, you might have just simply called them by their clan name, especially the head of the clan, this priest, this father figure, Reuel. So we meet him, this priest, and we meet his seven daughters. 
And it says in verse 16 that his seven daughters came out and drew water to fill the troughs to water their father's flock. In verse 17, we see trouble once again. Here's Moses finding himself yet again in the middle of trouble. That as these seven daughters come, they experience some sort of discord with some shepherds. And maybe these shepherds showed up and thought, man, we need to water our flocks. Who are these women? Who are these girls? Get them out of the way. And whatever happened, they began to harass or maybe even to assault them. And it says that Moses stood up for them and saved them. Saved them. The word is he delivered them from the hand of the shepherds. Is the text talking about the salvation of their flocks? The salvation of their very lives, maybe? Or maybe both? But once again, we get this picture of Moses as a deliverer. Here, Moses even seemingly beginning to take the role of a shepherd, leading, guiding. The first attempt didn't go so well with the murder of the Egyptian taskmaster, Moses taking things into his own hand. But now he finds himself in this second scenario, and it's successful. He saves these daughters from these shepherds. And it captures their father's attention in verse 18 through 28. 18 through 20. Reuel asks three questions through those three verses. Why are you back so early? Where is he? And why did, why did you leave him there? His daughters sum it up in verse 19, the whole story. They say, an Egyptian, listen, delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered The flock. This is what happened. Why are you back so early? Well, we had some trouble. But this Egyptian saved us from these shepherds' hands. And then he drew water, watered our flocks. We figured it was wise to come back. Of course, Reuel hears it. He says, well, where is this guy? And why did you leave him there? Go get him and bring him back so that he can eat bread. In verse 21, he offers him just that. And Moses is content, it says in verse 21, to dwell with the man, and the invitation goes further. Not just come stay and eat with me, but marry my daughter Zipporah. Now, if you remember last week, we said any time a woman is named, something is happening, something is going on, and here it is, the birth of another son. Have my wife Zipporah, and they were married, and what happens? She bore him a son, and they named him Gershom, Hebrew Gershom. It's a combination of just two words that means stranger here. Ger means stranger, Shom means here. And so Moses says, I know the perfect name for this child. Call him Gershom, which means stranger here, because I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Call him stranger here because I am a stranger here. I am a stranger in a strange land. Makes us ask, is that Moses' perception of these events still? After all that's gone on, and years maybe have passed, at least nine months have passed, and Moses still thinks, I'm a stranger here. I'm a strange person in a strange place, not where I should be, not where I ought to be. I'm out of place here. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. But what do we see? We see that from what appeared to be a series of unfortunate events, 
simply driving Moses out of necessity to run for his life. Maybe no real purpose, no real plan, no real story, nothing behind any of it. He just gets tired and runs out of steam at a random time, in a random place, by a random well, in this desolate wilderness full of danger. And yet from this place comes a family, a wife, a child. We'll see next week a calling, a ministry, a mission. God, once again, as we looked at those echoes from Genesis, God now once again bringing something from seemingly nothing. That's because number three today, it was indeed all a setup. Look at verse 23 through 25. During those many days, however long Moses was here in Midian, the king of Egypt died. Now, when we see that sometimes in the Bible, in the New Testament, we, we read about kings dying, and that's usually sort of a release, right? When Herod died, the angel told Joseph, arise, go back, you're safe now. But that is not the case here. This king dies, and the people, it says, groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Just as Moses' heart for deliverance was bubbling over back in the first part of our text today, now the people's suffering and their groaning and their moaning is boiling over, and they cry out to God for rescue. Verse 24, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Here in what we call this postscript, sort of if you're familiar with the Marvel movies, the end credit scene that's leading us into the next movie, that's what's going on here. The end of one saga, and if you just wait a minute, we'll see this little snippet that's leading us into the rest of the story. A postscript that's central, not just to the rest of this story, not just to the rest of the Bible, but even your life here today. Because the point in the postscript is this. Nothing we've seen to this point has been random, out of place, coincidental, or accidental. It's all reminding us, even here in verse 24, of the one promise God had made and he intends to keep. Back in Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you. I will curse And I will multiply your offspring and you will be a blessing to all nations. God remembers his covenant. God remembers his promise. God is unfolding his plan for this covenant and his promise. Even as the people in verse 23 don't see that. And they begin to cry out and groan to God for deliverance. We have this assurance in verse 25 that God sees and God knows. God saw And God knew. It's interesting to look at these bookends with the word God. If you're a careful reader, you would see that the word God has not been mentioned since chapter 1, verse 17. And the event with the midwives, who it says feared God more than Pharaoh. 
And now it pops up here again in this sort of end credits postscript scene. And we would ask the question, well, wasn't God involved in between? Where was God during Pharaoh's infanticide? Where was God when Moses was hidden in the basket in the river? Has he not been involved here in this story with Moses' failure, Moses' murder, Moses' running, Moses meeting this Midianite family and getting married and having a child? Has God not been involved every step of the way between those times? Well, the purpose of these bookends, that God was mentioned then and now God is mentioned again, is not to imply that God has been absent in the story to this point. But it is here to remind us that he has been present and involved every step of the way. Not just in this incident, but all the way back to Moses' birth. And not just with Moses, but now we see in verse 25, all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And just like I said last week, we could keep going back and back and back and back until there was no creation, until there was no time. Just God from all eternity with his sovereign counsel and will. That's as far back as we can go to say God has been in it. God has been through it. God has been underneath it and behind it all unfolding his plan in this one promise to his people. It was all a setup for the story that is about to unfold. And as God uses Moses, this flawed shepherd, to deliver his people from slavery, we will see that one promise and that one plan take root in this one ordinary shepherd. What do we see from Moses' life so far? I mean, it might have been good for the author, Moses, if he really wanted to glorify himself, to include some nice stories about his childhood. Maybe some things to make him endearing to the reader, to help us to understand him more. Instead, we pick up in the first real story we have about him as a, a, a volitional, grown adult person is this massive mistake he made with the Egyptian. This embarrassing account of this murder and his fleeing into the wilderness. What we've seen from Moses thus far is not very impressive. A failed attempt at deliverance. A frantic escape into the wilderness, and a man famished by a well. And then we're left with Moses' summary of it all. I'm just a stranger in a strange land. I wonder this morning if you relate to Moses in his assessment of his life at that moment. Maybe today you bring in here with you a running list of abject, embarrassing failures. Maybe you're adding to that list even right now. Maybe this morning before you left your house, you were adding to that list of abject failures. And as you leave today, you'll be adding to that list of failures. Maybe you find yourself here today frantically running from something. You're fighting the good fight and you're frantically running from temptation or sin. Maybe you're running because you've fallen into temptation or sin. Are you running from some fear, some responsibility, some accountability, some discipline? 
Or maybe today you find yourself running from God himself, knowing the good news of the gospel, but rejecting it and choosing to do things your own way, and you find yourself a fugitive from God here this morning. Maybe you find yourself here today famished, tired, worn, weary, for whatever reason. Maybe there's physical ailments in your body. The people we're praying for with ongoing needs for answers and guidance and direction. Maybe that's you today physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. You're out of place, out of sorts, out of time, out of resources, in a hostile, seemingly unforgiving world that does not feel like home. I don't feel that rest. I don't feel at home. I don't feel comfort right now. I'm running. I'm a failure. I'm tired. I want to remind you this morning that we know the story. We know where this is going. And we know what Moses said at the end of this section to be absolutely true. God sees and God knows. Not just that he knows, but the word means he took notice. Not just that he has the knowledge of what's going on in your life or their lives or Moses' life, but that God takes notice. You may think that your life right now, the events in your life right now, The attempts that you're making are nothing but failures. You may consider yourself to be running around frantically with no purpose, no story, no promise, nothing. You may consider yourself to be in no good place, no good to God, no good to anyone else, lost, confused, pointless. The reminder for you this morning is God knows, God sees, and he knows what he's doing. You say this morning, even in my failures, even in my sin, even in my mess-ups, I'm so glad Genesis 50-20 is in the Bible. When Joseph tells his brothers who sold him into slavery, after all these years of persecution and imprisonment, Joseph has ascended to the second highest rule in the land, and he says to his brothers now whom he's confronting, he says, you didn't do this. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Even in the failures, even in the sin. You say this morning, even in my running, even as I'm running from God or running from whatever I'm running from, absolutely. Think of Moses here, running We know what God will do with him. Think of Jonah running. We know what God does with him. Think of Saul of Tarsus running. And what God does with him. Think of Peter running. And what God chooses to do through him. You say, even in my confusion? Yes, because even though you may not know, God knows In Moses' serious failure, a disastrous failure that ended in murder, in Moses' running, one that led him to a desolate, strange wilderness, in Moses' weariness, coming to rest by a nondescript well in the middle of nowhere, God knew, God remembered, and God was at work. Someone needs to be reminded this morning that God is working. 
Someone in here needs to be reminded that God is working, not just in the big things, because we haven't gotten to the burning bush and the serpents and the rivers and the frogs and the flies and the Red Sea. We haven't even gotten there yet, and we see God working, not just in the big things, but in all things. Even when you mess up, even when you're running, even when you're confused, God is at work. In fact, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, especially when we find ourselves in that place, especially when we are at our weakest, lowest, tiredest point, God says, oh, I delight to work there. Because when you are weak, then my strength is made clear for everyone to see so that when God works and as God works in those times, no one can say, oh, good for you. Didn't you do a good job? None but God. Get the glory and the honor and the praise in our weakness and in our failures and our running. In your failures this morning, in your running, in your confusion, in your lostness, remember God is working. Choir sang these lyrics today. There is an unseen hand to me that leads through ways I cannot see. While going through this world of woe, this hand still leads me as I go. This hand has led through shadows drear, and while it leads, I have no fear. I know it will lead me to that home where sin nor sorrow e'er can come. I'm trusting to the unseen hand that guides me through this weary land. And some sweet day I'll reach that strand, still guided by the unseen hand. Hold this morning to that unchanging, unseen hand. When all else seems lost and dark and hopeless and strange. How many times... I've had to hold to that hand. How many times I had to hold to that unseen, unchanging hand. And God reminded me every step of the way that he's good and that he's faithful. And you know that in your life too this morning, don't you? That as you look back and remember and recount on how easy it is to forget. When times get tough, when things go bad again, how easy it is to forget. I'm asking you this morning to remember. Nothing is an accident with God. Nothing is messed up beyond his control and his plan. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing is outside of his story, his plan, his promise. Maybe today, as we've read Moses' account of a a man aimlessly running, it seems, through the wilderness to avoid his mistakes and his failures, finding himself in the middle of nowhere in a strange place, a strange land with strange people. 
We know God was at work. God sees and God knows, and he was there every step of the way. Maybe your story this morning, like Moses, doesn't make much sense at this point. You know, all the, all the, the movies we watch about Moses' life and the cartoon representations we show our kids and the coloring books, we kind of skip all this, don't we? We go from the, the basket to the burning bush and then right to the plagues, missing maybe some of this stuff that God was doing and where God was working. As we come at the end of our service here to the Lord's table, we come to a place of rest. We come to a well in the middle of a weary land. And we're reminded of God's promise here at this table. The same promise he made to Abraham. It's not a different promise. It's the same promise. Because that blessing that was going to come from Abraham to bless all nations is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We come to that same promise, that same plan. Here at the table, we're reminded of God's providence in that story. Just as Moses found himself in an impossible situation, yet called by God, Jesus was led seemingly by the hand of sinners and wicked and lawless men to a death on a cross. But Peter says this was all according to the predestined plan of God. We're reminded of God's providence of bringing us into that story. That time when God changed your heart, the light switch went on, and all of it clicked, and you said yes to Jesus. You professed that by being baptized, showing your union with Christ and his burial and his resurrection, becoming part of his local body, the church. You see God's guiding hand in all of that here at this table. We're reminded here of a God who knows the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. God knows. We're reminded here at this table of a God who said to his son, go call him. Go call her that they may come and eat bread with me. We're reminded of a God who said to his son, Here is your bride, your church, a God who takes sojourners and strangers and calls them sons and daughters. We find ourselves in that story, reminded that God sees and God knows. And I want to remind you this morning that wherever you are and whatever is going on in your life, We can all set our sights on the end of that story. That as the choir sang, I long to see my Savior's face and sing the story saved by grace. And there upon that golden strand, I'll praise him for his guiding hand. What do we do here? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until we see him. We get a little glimpse, a little taste of that here at this table. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach
reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.